Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Here's the late Congressman Elijah Cummings speaking at Morgan State University's commencement in 2019. As Dr. King often reminded us in my youth, our nation's darkest hours has often been just before the dawn. So it can be again as we stand together, march together, vote together, and demand the light of democracy be restored. As we have done so often in our past, we who are Americans of color must once again lead this march to defend our Constitution and the democratic republic it sustains. We who once were slaves, we who once were called three-fifths of a man, we who once were barred from citizenship must now march in the forefront of a movement of democratic restoration for all Americans. We are at a crossroads, and we must once again assert the full measure of our citizenship. Elijah Cummings died a year ago this month. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Cummings was the son of sharecroppers who went on to serve for 23 years as a Democratic member of the U.S. House. He had a reputation for reaching across the aisle, including his unlikely friendship with North Carolina Republican Mark Meadows. Cummings was a passionate orator and chaired one of the most powerful committees in the House. He passed before he could complete his memoir. His wife, Maya Rocky Moore Cummings, wrote the final chapter for the book, We're Better Than This, My Fight for the Future of Our Democracy, that was released in September. Maya Rockymore Cummings is president and CEO of Global Policy Solutions. She joins us now to talk about her husband's memoir and his legacy. Welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. I want to start with the memoir of your late husband that was recently published. One of the many legacies that Congressman Cummings left behind is this idea of a better America. And it was also a call to action. But with all that's happened in this year, can we truly be better? So Elijah felt very firmly, uh, and he talks about it in this book, We're Better Than This, that we've been through these kinds of challenges before. Uh, we've been through the horrors of Jim Crowism uh, with lynchings, with you know water hosings, with unexplained murders. Uh, and we're still going through the horror of, you know, police violence, brutality, uh, and murders on street corners across the country, uh, and certainly a rise in hate crimes. We've dealt with these issues before when we've confronted the system and demanded justice and equity, and we will deal with them again by confronting the system and dealing with justice and equity. In this book, he argues that Donald Trump is not just unfit for the position of president of the United States of America. He argues that he's actually a threat to humanity and also a threat to our democracy. 
This was not about partisanship for Elijah Cummings. This was absolutely about the future of our nation and the future of our children and what we must do to establish a more perfect union. Thinking about what's the best thing for our country and the right thing for our country, thinking about that in tandem with what Congressman Cummings experienced in his own life of growing up in this segregation in the country, of experiencing segregation, of, you know, being uh, turned away from a pool, even in Maryland. And a lot of people think, oh, it's the North, it's the, you know, sort of up South is, is what we jokingly call it. But this idea that even in these spaces, people still confront that resistance. And I'm thinking now, Maya, about the photos and videos we're seeing from places like Georgia and North Carolina, these hours long lines of people trying to vote, of mailboxes being removed. And yet Congressman Cummings writes in this memoir that we are not powerless. So beyond voting in the election, how do we reclaim that power as the American people? So Elijah believed very strongly because of his own life's experiences that we absolutely cannot be armchair citizens. We absolutely must confront our systems of government. We have to engage on a constant basis. We have to be active citizens and involved beyond voting. Uh, and we have to maintain an inside-outside game, meaning protest is a constitutionally protected right. What the people on the streets protesting are doing is absolutely quintessential American. Uh, it is about uh, exercising our First Amendment right. It's about speaking up and speaking out and demanding a system of justice, a system that does better. Now, in Elijah's own life, he was born, and people think that Maryland is a progressive blue state, but the reality is, is it was a deep South state. Uh, it was south of the Mason-Dixon line. President Lincoln actually had to declare martial law uh, in Baltimore uh, in order to overcome the Confederate sentiments and the leadership uh, that was uh, aligned with the Confederacy because he needed uh, Baltimore and Maryland as a route to from between DC and the North. And people don't know that the first shots of the Civil War were actually shot in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, and so with that, you know, Elijah grew up in a segregated Jim Crow South. He couldn't go into stores in downtown Baltimore or restaurants. Uh, he had to, you know, maintain his presence in a separate and unequal school early on. Uh, and so he, early on at 11 years old, participated in the immigrant integration march uh, where he integrated a swimming pool that was all white. And he saw the power of the legal system. He saw the power of using the law to challenge the system to do better for all people. And he determined, uh, he was determined to become a lawyer himself. And he did so, rising above his circumstances to become one of the most powerful legislators in the United States of America. So let's talk about his beloved Baltimore. You have been very candid about the pain you and your husband experienced after the president made comments about Baltimore and other cities, but particularly focusing in on Baltimore, that even as Representative Cummings was facing major health challenges, he was the center of attack, not just from the president's comments, but from those who supported him. You know, in Connecticut, we have uh, Congresswoman Johanna Hayes, who's the first black woman to serve our state, who wrote a piece in Medium talking about that fatigue 
of how it's not just about words, that it weighs on your soul, it weighs on you physically. Talk to us about how those threats and taunts affected you, but also how you navigated through it. Absolutely. So let me just say this. Just a few hours before the president started tweeting, we had a home invasion. Uh, we had someone who broke into our home. I was woken up in that. So by this time, people should know that Elijah could no longer get upstairs. So we had a medical bed set up in, in the, on the living room, first floor of a level. And I hear Elijah yelling. And so I run downstairs. And he said, there's a man in our hallway. And I run outside and I basically meet this man at a door. He's actually reaching up to close our door, which is quite polite for a home invader, right? So Elijah, we chased him off, but Elijah and I decided not to call the cops. When we woke up in the morning, uh, he called his chief of staff, uh, district director, uh, to call a detective instead of calling the police. We didn't want to disturb our neighbors. And the next thing you know, President Trump starts tweeting about how corrupt and crime-ridden Baltimore is and how terrible Elijah Cummings is. Now, you should know that, you know, this comes right after uh, an incredible month where Elijah laid out his, all these investigations on Donald Trump. Uh, everything from Jared and Ivanka's emails to security clearances to what was happening on the southern border uh, to uh, Trump, Trump's finances and taxes. Uh, and so we knew that he was going to come after us. Um, and I always remember the words of the first lady where she said, whenever her husband feels threatened, uh, that he hits back and punches back harder. Mm-hmm. And so this was all encompassing. We received death threats. Uh, we, um, you know, online, my, my husband wasn't active online, but I was, and there was all kinds of trolls and I mean, just nastiness, nastiness, nastiness. And I've got to tell you that Elijah was deeply hurt. I was, uh, of course, angry. Uh, and we were both, I think, uh, scared. Um, and so I reached out to a friend at Google who reached out to a friend at Twitter, and they were able to somehow protect my account from all these trolls and bots. And Elijah felt deeply hurt, not just because of the attack, but because he treated a, a, a great American city uh, and compared its residents to insects. Uh, he treated them at, and us as if we were outside of the body politic, not deserving and not belonging within the United States of America. And Elijah's been there before. As the child of a segregated Jim Crow South, he knows what it's like to be an American citizen who's treated as if they don't belong. And he was desperately hurt, not just for himself, but for his community. There's a passage from the book that really stands out, especially in this moment, so many pieces of the book. But Congressman Cummings wrote, I'm a Democrat, but more than a party, I believe in people in freedom, in opportunity, and country, and making sure we have a democracy to leave our children. And he affirmed that importance of working across the aisle, of affirming the humanity of people, when he talked about his friendship with then-Representative Mark Meadows, who's now the president's chief of staff. How do we build on that? How do we build on that core of believing in people over party? So you have to understand that we all, we're all human beings. We have to value each other on the level of our common humanity. And as human beings, we have things that we all need. You know, we all need safety and security. We all need freedom. 
We all need justice. Uh, these are common factors that we all need. Uh, and when our society is willing to slice and dice itself up into distinctions and differences that deny some people those basic rights and needs uh, while guaranteeing it for other people, then, then we have then uh, introduced uh, uh, domestic insecurity, meaning that we have created conditions that are right for the destruction of our democracy and the destruction of our nation. So with this, you know, Elijah believes so strongly in democracy. It's ironic uh, that he and people like RGB, uh, you know, were born uh, from a persecuted people. Uh, they were on the outside and outskirts of society as African-Americans and as women. And they figured out a way to use the legal system to challenge the system uh, to then, of course, become a part of the system, rising to the highest offices in the land and become wanting, becoming some of the staunchest defenders of our democracy. Why? because they know that the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the human rights movement could never have happened without it, uh, our nation being a democracy where we have these fundamental rights of protest and freedom of speech. And if we don't have a democracy, we won't have freedom, justice and equity for all people. And so we need to work towards a more perfect society, but we need to do it by preserving and protecting our democracy. I was struck watching the very powerful tribute that you gave for your husband at his homegoing celebration. And in our faith tradition, that's what it is, a, a homegoing celebration. And I was struck listening to your words and then seeing the image of Congressman John Lewis sitting there to pay tribute to his friend. Thinking about the legacies of these two amazing men who endured so much in their own lives, but still never lost sight of this commitment to democracy and particularly to young people. What's that legacy that you want people to continue? So Elijah, when Elijah passed away, a lot of people said, I'm sorry for your loss, but it was really our loss as a nation. And same thing with John Lewis, you know, they were friends. Uh, Elijah considered John Lewis a mentor. They, they looked alike somewhat in the face. And so a lot of people often confuse them and they were definitely very close and they shared a common passion for freedom and justice. Uh, and this was often uh, overlapping specifically in the areas of voting rights. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's really sad uh, that they both passed away within 10 months of each other. These are two giants giant leaders. Uh, and so with that, you know, Elijah's legacy, uh, yes, is one of protecting and defending our democracy, just like uh, Congressman John Lewis. But just like Congressman John Lewis, Elijah believed very strongly in making sure that we're uplifting our young people, that future generations have an opportunity to thrive, and that we don't do anything to actually undermine their opportunities to be the best that they can be in life. He uh, put together this uh, a program called Elijah Cummings Youth Program, where you know uh, it's been 20 years in the uh, making and operation, and 100% of the young disadvantaged young people, primarily African American, who have gone through it, have graduated from high school. 95% have graduated from college. They have become journalists. They have become nonprofit leaders. They are now running for office, and so he leaves a living legacy uh, that uh, that you know, of course, is I'm very proud. Of. So Maya, this is a book written by your husband about his belief in our country, about his commitment to democracy. But I don't want to overlook that you are a formidable force 
in your own right. You have achieved so much. You know, you, a month after losing your husband, you talked about your own health struggles. And even in the midst of that, you were still advocating for increased access to health care, for affordable medications and treatment, and of reminding all of us that as we face our own struggles, we can still be advocates for other people. Why is it important for you to work on these issues, to uh, affirm these spaces now that you have sort of been able to see different spaces of challenge within the U.S.? So we continue to need advocates, voices that are fighting for the American people. And while, you know, I did run for office after Elijah passed, I did not win. Um, You know, I believe uh, very strongly that uh, the power of our voices makes a difference. And um, I will continue until I no longer have breath uh, to uplift my voice to speak out against injustice, uh, to talk about what we need to do, particularly in the policy realm, on the basic areas of education, health, wealth. uh, And now an emerging area that we need to pay strict attention to is technology. Um, All of these things we need to make sure that we focus on and uplift and point towards our North Star, the direction that's going to lead us to the path of greatest opportunity uh, and success uh, for as many people as possible. And so with that, I consider myself my my mandate in life to drive society toward inclusion. Uh, And that means, you know, really kind of uplifting this intersection of the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. That is the work that I've done for more than 25 years. That is the work that I will continue to do until I am gone. Thanks to Maya Rockymore Cummings, president and CEO of Global Policy Solutions, author, commentator, and widow of the late Congressman Elijah Cummings, who represented Maryland for over 20 years. Coming up, former federal prosecutor Paul Butler, author of Chokehold, Policing Black Men. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Paul Butler argues that the criminal justice system has a chokehold over Black men that is institutionally constructed to control them. Butler is a former federal prosecutor who got involved to change the system, but he says the system ended up changing him. He's now the Albert Brick Professor of Law at Georgetown and author of Chokehold, Policing Black Men. He joins us now. Professor Butler, welcome to Disrupted. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I want to get right into the book and the topic and and how it fits into so much of what's happening in the United States. You wrote this book in 2017, and that was a year after a contentious election. It was four years after the acquittal of the person who killed Trayvon Martin led to the creation of the Black Lives Matter movement, and three years after Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson. And yet the themes and the focus of this book are incredibly relevant to where we are today. Talk to us about this book in the context of this argument you make that the criminal justice system has a chokehold over black men 
And that system is institutionally constructed to control African-American men. Why make that argument? You know, I had this crazy experience when I was a prosecutor of getting arrested myself for a crime that I didn't commit. And this started out as a quickie book for other brothers like me who were in the criminal legal process about how to navigate, how to have the best outcomes, how to, if you have to deal with the police, how to deal with them in a way that doesn't get you arrested or killed. And while I was working on that book, Trayvon Martin got killed, followed by Eric Garner in Staten Island, Mike Brown in Ferguson, Sandra Bland in Texas. And suddenly, the idea of a book about how Black men should navigate the criminal legal process didn't seem to rise to the occasion. It didn't seem consistent with the times. Trayvon Martin didn't need a male role model. He was on his way to his dad's house when he got gunned down. Mike Brown was supposed to start college the week before he got killed by the police. And so I wanted to write something that met the moment of all of these Black people being subject to state-sponsored violence. And it was a moment, again, where I was thinking about Freddie Gray in Baltimore and Eric Garner in Staten Island. And my publisher said something like what you just said. She said, the book's going to come out after those stories are done in terms of the news cycle. But the sad thing about this book is it's always going to be relevant. But if, in fact, this news cycle continues and the public has sort of a fleeting attention span to these issues, how is it that you, as someone who is educated at Yale and Harvard Law and has done all the things or achieved all the markers, right, that society tells young people so that they don't become involved in the criminal justice system, how is it possible then that this system can actually control black men in society given all of these things that you yourself have accomplished? When I got locked up, people say, well, didn't you tell the cops that you were a prosecutor? Damn right I did. And when I said that, the cop replied back, so you probably already know this. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be held against you in a court of law. But look, I, I'm not the victim. Things worked out really well for me on the basis of those things that you mentioned. I went to these fancy schools. I had a fancy job. It shouldn't matter, but it, it did matter. So again, people like me, to the extent that a Black person can be privileged in the system, uh, we're privileged. But what I wanted to point out in Choco was that when we look at all of the problems in our criminal legal process, how many people are locked up? There are more African-Americans in the criminal legal process today than there were slaves in 1850. When we think about how things got this bad, black men are the reason why. Anxiety, 
this desire to control us, to deal with us. The state, the police are our government. And it doesn't mean that black men are the only subjects. A lot of other people are victims too, including African-American women, including immigrants, including Latinx people, including trans people. But when we ask how things got this bad, black men trying to deal, control us, we're the reason why. So, you know, I was struck by what you just said in that comment about the number of people who are involved in the criminal legal system today versus the number of people who were enslaved in the past. And if you think about sort of the legacies and the creation of, you know, convict labor and how that was used to reproduce wealth when plantations failed, why do you think black men have become the target of the system or do you feel that it is just a, uh, an outcome of the system of control that you write about? I think that we're the target. So if you look at how stereotypes about Black men have traveled over time, during slavery, Black men weren't thought of as, as violent or criminal-minded, which makes sense if you think about the close proximity between enslaved people and white folks. So there were certainly stereotypes. We were heathens or comical or stupid, but we weren't violent. All of that changes after emancipation. Suddenly, in the white imaginary, black men are violent, brutal, ape-like, and were lasciviously attracted to white women. And this justifies the private violence of lynching and the public violence of first the old Jim Crow and now the new Jim Crow. And I think one of the really important insights of the movement for Black Lives is that we have to understand that police and incarceration are symptoms. The disease is white supremacy. The disease is patriarchy. And we might be able to work on the police. We might be able to reduce incarceration, but unless we treat the disease, it's just going to mutate the way that it did from slavery to the old Jim Crow to the new Jim Crow. Police officers then become part of this broader system that you write about and that you teach about, and also a sort of a, a disease that doesn't really get addressed at its core, but around the margins. And I want to talk about your time as a prosecutor then, because the claims that you make in this book that are so relevant to what the country's grappling with right now, many people say that prosecutors are part of that system. So talk to us about your experience as a prosecutor, how you made that career choice, given the many options that you had as such a talented legal mind. It starts with a 12-year-old kid growing up in Chicago, a city that Martin Luther King said was the most segregated he'd seen mm -hmm. since Birmingham. And I'm riding my bike to the library, which is literally across the tracks on the white side of the neighborhood. 
<laughs> and when I cross those tracks, this cop car pulls up alongside me, and a cop rolls down his window and asks, is that bike yours? I said, yeah, officer, is that car yours? And then I sped away. When I got home, I told my mom what I'd said. My mom, who had marched with both Malcolm and Martin, and she gave me a spanking. Didn't I know what happened to black boys who talked to the cops like that? Hmm. It turned out she was exactly right, because now we know at the same time, the Chicago police were literally operating an off-site where they tortured black men. They poured soda up their nostrils. They attached electrodes to their genitals. The city of Chicago has now paid out millions and millions of dollars in compensation to black men who were tortured. So why with that experience would I become a prosecutor? I went in as kind of an undercover brother. I was hoping that I could create change from within, but what I found was rather than change the system, the system changed me. The damn thing was when I started to do that work, I was good at it and I kind of enjoyed it. But two things happened. One was this intellectual, political dawning that I didn't go to Harvard Law School to put black people in prison. And the other was that dramatic episode that we talked about earlier when I ended up getting arrested and prosecuted for a crime that I didn't commit. It's striking to me to hear you talk about your experience growing up in Chicago for two reasons. One, because I think of Emmett Till and his mother making the decision to send him to the South to be with family and how Chicago becomes a part of that story. But even where we are now, where Chicago has become this metaphor for lawlessness and recklessness and people rely on that city to justify what they now conceive of as a law and order approach, which as we know, has really often been an excuse for abuses of power targeting the most vulnerable. Thinking then about your experiences growing up as a young person in Chicago, hearing that lesson from your mother of, you know, trying to correct that early on to protect you and then going into law school and having these experiences as a prosecutor. And as you said, you went in to change the system, but the system changed you. What's the conversation that you now have with young attorneys or aspiring attorneys who are trying to figure out their place, not just within that system, but within society. So I talk a lot with young lawyers who, like me, are thinking about being a prosecutor because they hear that prosecutors have all this power and all this discretion, and they hope that maybe they can use that to prevent people from getting locked up. Maybe by working from the inside, they can do some good. And I get it. 
that's the same thing that I was thinking, but unfortunately, it's not the way it works. As a prosecutor, you get credit for locking up as many people as you can for as long as you can. Lawyers, we're competitive, we're ambitious. We like to do well in our jobs, and that's how you do well in a prosecutor's office. Now, one difference recently is we have this small group of elected DAs who are progressive prosecutors. Hmm. Think of Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore. Think of Kim Fox in Chicago. People elected in San Francisco, in Philly. They're running on platforms. They want to be the DA and they want to lock up fewer people. So I'm really interested in this project, in this experiment. And I've got students who are working for all those folks and I've told them, keep in touch. Let me know how it goes. You mentioned Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore and when she brought charges against the officers involved in the death of Freddie Gray, she became the target for a lot of people who said that she was dividing the city, that she was going to make the city unsafe because then officers would be afraid to do their jobs because they didn't want to be made an example of. And I think it had an impact on her ability to champion that view, given that the people who should have been supporting her really became an obstacle to that. How do prosecutors navigate and hold that tension that in trying to do what you believe is right, you are in fact going against a system that you are working within? And, you know, as we know, Professor Butler, systems and institutions persist for a reason long beyond the individuals working within them. When we think about how prosecutors act, uh, there's a big contrast between somebody like Marilyn Mosby and Daniel Cameron, the African-American attorney general in Kentucky, who had a long press conference where he justified what the police did to Breonna Taylor. That's the word that he used, justified, and said that while what happened to her was a tragedy, it was not a crime. And so the way that some prosecutors act is like they understand that the politics of law and order requires a certain anti-blackness performance. And that's what they give us. Paul Butler is the Albert Brick Professor of Law at Georgetown University, former federal prosecutor and author of Chokehold, Policing Black Men. We'll hear more from him after the break. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This is Disrupted. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Our guest today is Paul Butler, Albert Brick Professor of Law at Georgetown University, former federal prosecutor and author of Chokehold, Policing Black Men. In August, Butler stood in an empty courtroom and delivered a mock opening statement of what he would say if he was making an argument in front of a jury in the case against Breonna Taylor's killers. He posted the video online. Here's a clip from the 10-minute speech. There's a legal term 
for why these three men wrote a police report full of lies. There's a legal term for why these men did not use their cameras when they killed Breonna Taylor. That term is called consciousness of guilt. These officers didn't want anybody to see what they were doing. They were going to send a message to the people in Breonna's neighborhood that if one person shoots a cop in the leg, anybody within firing range is going to pay. They knew it was wrong, but they thought they could get away with it. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, please don't let these three killers get away with manslaughter. I asked Butler to talk about why he recorded the video. I was trying to do a few things. The first is to show Daniel Cameron how to do his job. So at that point, it had been four months and not a peep about whether those cops were going to be brought to justice. And I anticipated that he would be reluctant to charge three white police officers with any crime for killing an African-American woman. And I didn't want him to have an excuse that there was no case to be made. And I also wanted to embrace the activism around state violence against a black woman. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the focus has been on black men. And I think it's important to take an intersectional look at African-American men, which is what I do in my book, Chokehold. But one of the lessons of intersectionality is that when there's a race issue, often the way that it impacts black men is what's emphasized, even when black women experience the same problem. And so one other motivation for making that video is to demonstrate to the whole world as activists in the movement for Black Lives have been doing, that this isn't only an issue that impacts Black men, that the police don't treat Black women any better. You ended that statement by saying, I'm confident we will get justice. What does justice look like now for Rihanna Taylor, for her family, for others who are navigating this terrain? What does justice look like? Criminal justice is dead for mm. Rihanna Taylor's family. It's not going to happen. There's a civil settlement, which is important. Her loved ones get a lot of money that will never compensate their laws. And uh, thanks to the wisdom of her family members and the lawyers who work with them, their requirements for the police in Louisville to do better. So these are reforms, including more supervision of when police officers execute search warrants. And another requirement is that the department takes steps 
so that police officers live in the city. Think about what a difference it would have made if those three officers who broke into Brianna's apartment and shot her dead, if they lived in that community, if they were neighbors, almost certainly they would not have shot up that apartment complex the way they did. Since the death of George Floyd, there's been a lot of conversation about reforms that need to happen at the national level. So there's a bill in the Senate about no-knock warrants. Kentucky is making some changes. The city of Louisville has made these changes that you just mentioned. But in your book, I want to quote directly from the book because it's such a powerful sentence. And you say, for people of color to be safe and free, the old ways of thinking about reform and civil rights are not only insufficient, they can get in the way of the transformation that the U.S. so desperately needs. So you're calling essentially for a total overhaul of that system. As we think about moving forward, as we think about if in fact justice in the criminal domain for Breonna Taylor is dead, and we capture this moment where some people, for whatever reason, seem interested in reform, what are the steps that we need to take to get to that transformative change that you mentioned? So the problem with reform is that the system ain't broke. It's working the way it's supposed to. And so if it's not broken, there's nothing to fix. It's supposed to ensnare black men. It's supposed to result in people of color getting locked up and punished in situations in which white people wouldn't meet that fate. And so reform is insufficient. We have to think about transformation. We have to imagine public safety in a whole new way. On the way to that free world, reform has a role. What I wanted to do in Choco was to look at whether reform efforts actually worked to make the police do better. And one reform people talk about a lot is when the Department of Justice comes in and takes over a local police department. Mm -hmm. What I found looking at the evidence is that that works some of the time in the short term. And it's very political in a very direct way. If there's a Republican in the White House, the Department of Justice doesn't do those kind of cases. If there's a Democrat in the White House, it does. This isn't a Trump thing. This is a Republican thing overall. But when it works, what it means is that For that period, the police don't kill and beat up and arrest as many black people as they would without the reform. So that's a a good thing, right? But Mm -hmm. the tension is, and I think it's easiest to see this in the context of the death penalty. So a lot of people, including me, want the death penalty to be abolished. Some of those folks also have engaged in reform. So what that means, and they've been successful. So now it's unconstitutional to, for the government to kill children. 
or people who committed crimes when they were children. It's unconstitutional for the government to kill people who have intellectual disabilities. So that's all good. That's important reform. The problem is that it makes the death penalty fairer, right? So in a sense, it makes it harder to abolish. And there's that same tension with reforming prisons and reforming the police and imagining transformation, uh, imagining uh, a new holistic non-white supremacist way uh, of thinking about what it means to be safe and free. There may be people who are listening to our conversation and saying, I completely agree. What happened to Breonna Taylor is horrible. The fact that no one has been held accountable is horrible. I completely agree that Derek Chauvin should be punished for what he did to George Floyd or what happened to a Tatiana Jefferson and her death. And those same people will say, but... I also want to be free. I also want to be safe. And often those critics use the trope of black on black violence, of saying that, you know, using statistics or data to somehow justify that. Touch on that for us about why in the book you really deconstruct this notion of black on black violence by putting it into context of how the chokehold becomes internalized. So white on white violence is a thing. Most crime happens like most other kinds of social transactions in the United States, it's segregated. So the vast majority of white people, somewhere around 85% who are victims of a crime are victimized by another white person. So yeah, white on white crime is a big deal. There's a big problem with gun violence among white men. White men die by gunfire around the same rate that black men die by gunfire. With white men, the gun violence issue is mainly centered around suicide. With black men, it's homicide. With Suicide, we understand that that's a public health issue. It turns out the same thing is true about homicide. It's also a public health issue. But black on black has a resonance that white on white doesn't. We look at black people and black men through a, a criminal lens, even when the same stuff is going on with white people. Now, it's true, as I say, I have a whole chapter about this in Choco, that black men are at disproportionate risk for homicide. At the same time, when a black person commits a crime, she gets punished, she gets arrested. There's a difference between violence by individuals that gets punished and state-sanctioned violence by the police that does not get punished. And that's the concern, that the police kill 1,000 people every year, and almost all of those homicides 
result just like what happened in Kentucky. They're justified. And many may well be justified, but not all of them. And if you consider that the police have killed about 15,000 people in the last 15 years, and there have been somewhere around 100, 150 prosecutions of cops, and the majority of those cops have walked. And so there's a categorical difference, again, between private violence that's punished and state violence for which people are not held accountable. Paul Butler is Albert Brick Professor of Law at Georgetown University, former federal prosecutor and author of Chokehold, Policing Black Men. Disrupted is produced by Daniela Luna and Katie Tolarski, and we want to hear from you. Send us your feedback and ideas to Disrupted at ctpublic.org. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.